In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Holy Spirit, we ask you to come and be with us this day. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for just the grace and the, and the gift you've given us in these days. And we ask you this day, Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, to continue to open our minds and our hearts to your presence and to your word speaking this day. And Mary, in a special way, we ask for your motherly protection and your motherly intercession upon us now and all the days of our life. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. It's a reading from the second letter of Peter. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, that through these you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of passion, and become partakers of the divine nature. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these things are yours and abound, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the 11th and 12th centuries, there was a, a revolution that had spread all across of Europe. And unlike many of the other revolutions in history, this revolution was a peaceful revolution. It was a nonviolent revolution. It was the most prayerful revolution that has ever occurred. It was, as I like to call, the Franciscan Revolution. <laughs> A revolution completely based upon the gospel. And you know, it's interesting, everyone agrees that St. Francis changed the world, right? Atheists, agnostics, even Dominicans, <laughs> Benedictines, everyone believes that St. Francis changed the world, right? He's one of those figures in history that is just that has had such a dramatic effect that everyone loves him and I you know I think the question is why does everyone love Saint Francis and I think maybe a sort of a, a superficial understanding of why people love Saint Francis is because Saint Francis was a deeply deeply sincere man right he lived what he believed Right? St. Francis never placed himself above others. He was humility to the max. Right? But we might ask the question, how did Francis do that? Right? Where did he get his inspiration from? And quite honestly, his inspiration for his whole life comes 
from the Gospels. Right? Francis didn't just think about the Gospels. He didn't just pray with the Gospels or just get in long conversations about the Gospels. But Francis lived them, almost to the T. When, when Francis read in the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus says to his disciples, Take no gold or silver or copper in your belts, no bag for your money, nor tunics, nor sandals, nor staff. When Francis hears those words, it's almost as if there's this eruption in, his, in the very depths of his being. And Francis says, this is what I want. This is what I seek. And this is what I desire with my whole heart. And this is exactly what Francis does. <laughs> he throws away all of his money, which is his father's money. Right? <laughs> He literally throws away his clothes. In the middle of his town square, he strips naked before the bishop and a whole crowd of people and says, I want nothing to do, pretty much, with my father. I now belong to our father in heaven. So he takes off the very clothes that his father gives him. I don't recommend that <laughs> anyway, especially on this retreat. Um, this is not one of those kind of retreats. But what does the bishop do? The bishop covers Francis, right? And from that moment on, Francis sets out literally like, like a fool, not knowing where he's going to go, not knowing what he's going to do. He's only being led by the Gospels. Right? and by the Holy Spirit, who's, who's certainly speaking to him and, and moving through him. But it is the Gospels that were his, in a sense, his compass, or his GPS system, right? Because without them, Francis had no sense of direction. But with them, he was never lost, right? And so... I think this is what is so attractive about St. Francis, that his authenticity is just so real. Right? He is a man in love with the Lord, right? first and foremost. So much so that he is, in a sense, a fool. Right? In, in Russia, you hear about these, these holy fools. Right? I think Francis would easily fit into that category of being this fool who is completely in love. And here's the funny thing, you know, would I recommend to someone to do what St. Francis did? No, absolutely not. Right? We have a lot of young guys who come to our community and they almost say similar things like, you know, I just want to throw away everything and strip myself of everything of my parents. And the sort of a, a prudent balance understanding is, don't do that, please. <laughs> you know, it's not your money to just give away, it's your parents' money. But I believe that when God looked into the heart of Francis, right, that what he saw in Francis's heart was a heart that was so convicted, that was so given over, that was so in love, that God couldn't help but to shower him with grace to guide him. Right? Francis is one of those special people, one of those special saints, where God's grace just seems to completely dump on him, to completely cover him, in a sense, to protect him. And the amazing thing is that through St. Francis, Christ became 
accessible. Christ became visible to the people, right? as really any saint does. Right? The, what the, the beauty of, of the saints is that it's through them where we see Jesus. Right? Mother Teresa would walk into a room, and before she would utter a word, people would start crying. News reporters and politicians. You know, speaking of which, do you remember when Pope Francis visited the, uh, the Congress? You know, all the senators were there, and Francis was there, and they started crying. Right? You usually don't see politicians cry, right? There's just the presence, I think, of a, a man or a woman close to Jesus radiates through them, and Christ becomes accessible. Listen to these words of Pope Pius XI speaking about St. Francis. He says, There has never been anyone in whom the image of Jesus Christ and the evangelical manner of life shone forth more strikingly than in St. Francis. And then listen to this. He who called himself the herald of the great king was also rightly spoken of as another Jesus Christ, appearing to his contemporaries and to future generations almost as if he were the risen Christ. That is a bold thing to say. <laughs> almost as if he were the risen Christ. Imagine if people spoke like that about us. <laughs> Right, if when they talked about Father Jeremiah, that he was almost as if he were another risen Christ. Now, no one's ever said that about me, thank God, right? because it's far from the truth. But imagine if people spoke like that about us. You know, in the town where Francis was beginning this revolution, there is a a young woman born into a rich family. Who was captivated by Francis? She would listen to him preach, and her heart was moved. Right? She would hear about him going off and loving and serving the lepers, the very people that the society had sort of ostracized to the corners of the of the of the town of the culture. She would hear about Francis spending nights and days in prayer in the hills of Assisi. And on Palm Sunday in the year 1212, this young woman who has literally her whole life before her, she could have chosen any man to marry, she could have very easily entered into a life of ease and wealth and comfort. She runs off into the woods to meet Francis and some of the other brothers. And they cut her hair and she begins her religious life. And we know her as St. Clair, right? She doesn't know where she's going, and so Francis sort of puts her in this cloister of Benedictine nuns until we kind of figure out, what does God want to do here? And then obviously that will grow when she'll begin the poor Clares, and a whole group of women will come and begin to follow her. And what attracted Claire to Francis? Right? Francis was no longer wealthy and actually just came from a middle-class family, but he had gotten rid of all of his money, all of his inheritance. He wasn't overly intelligent, right? I don't know if, if Francis was a handsome man. Probably, <laughs> probably by this time, it was a long time since he 
took a bath. <laughs> so he wasn't overly physically attractive. So what was it that attracted Claire to Francis? Right? It was Jesus in Francis. Right? Francis revealed Christ to Claire. When Francis would go through the streets, some people would laugh at him. They would say that this Francis had lost his mind. Some people would throw mud at him and say, you know, you're a, you're a lunatic, you're crazy. But Claire saw the real Francis. She saw a man deeply in love. And because he was so in love with Christ, Francis was becoming transformed. He was becoming divinized. We'll explain what that means in a few minutes. But he was becoming like Christ. I think a danger sometimes of speaking about the saints is that we can almost admire them from a distance, right? And we can think, well, that's not for me, right? I can't give away everything I have. Like Francis, I have children, right? <laughs> Shelby, you don't have children yet, so you can give away everything you have. But if you have children, yes, you cannot give away everything you have. God is certainly not calling you to do that, right? But more than admire the saints from, the, from a distance, we are to be inspired by the saints to live similar lives, not in, not in the literal detail, not in necessarily replicating their lives completely, because many of the conditions that the saints' lives were inspired from were determined by their culture, were determined by the time, by their family, by the state of the church at the time, right? I can't go back to 12th century Italy as a Franciscan in the 21st century in America, right? I mean, it would be foolish to do that because we miss the grace of God today, right? And so if you want to be like the saints, if you want to really live the way the saints lived, then we have to respond to the grace that God is giving us right now in our unique situation, in our unique culture, considering our age, our temperaments, our vocation in life. When we respond to the grace that God is giving us personally, individually, then that is why, that is how I imitate the saints. That is exactly what Francis did. He responded to the grace that God was giving him right there, right now. And you could say that about every saint. Saint Benedict, the very same thing, right? Saint Therese, responding to the grace that God was giving them right there and right now. And not to try to be like the person next to us not necessarily here in this circle, but whether in our, in our lives, right? Not to be like the person who in church we think looks holy, right? But to be the very person God is calling you to be.
That is the secret of the saints. To be the very person God is calling you to be. And how do we do that? By responding to the grace that God has given me and you right here, right now. You know, somebody, a friend of mine in Texas recently, I was talking to him, I was telling him about this little preaching journey I've been on here. I'm doing three retreats and he's, he's married and he has four children under the age of six. And he says to me through email, he says, I don't know how you can preach all these retreats. Without missing a beat, I typed back and said, I don't know how you can raise four children <laughs> under the age of six. And so it's a matter of grace, right? He's being given the grace to live his vocation. I'm being given the grace to live my vocation. One's not necessarily better than the other. It's the grace of God that enables me to do this and enables him to raise these children. Right? And so when this happens, when we respond to this grace, there is a beautiful transformation that occurs in us. And the word that we use for that transformation is called divinization. Or it could be called deification. Or sometimes in the Eastern Church, theosis. But we'll just refer to it as divinization. And we don't hear a lot about this in the Western Church. But in the Eastern Church, this language is more familiar and they speak about it a lot but just because we don't speak about it a lot in the western church doesn't mean it's any less of a reality i think just in the eastern church they've just they just grasp onto it more more beautifully and so they speak about it and so what does this word mean divinization to try to make it as simple as possible it is this process of transformation of our human nature by divine grace. It is a process of transformation of our human nature by divine grace. And here is the kicker. To live the life of God. Not to admire it, not to think about it, but to live the very life of God. It is a sharing in God's life. Right? Did you hear that reading from 2 Peter where he talks about becoming partakers of the divine nature? That is a loaded, loaded phrase. Becoming partakers of of the divine nature. And we can sum all of this up, I think, in this phrase. Becoming God-like. Becoming God-like. Now, just so you think that I'm not crazy or that I'm a heretic, <laughs> I want to quote to you two um, church fathers, and this is quoted in the Catechism as well. But this is what St. Athanasius says. St. Athanasius, this is, we're talking 4th um, century, well, 3rd third, third and 4th century here. Huge, huge player in the Council of Nicaea. He says, The Son of God became man so that we might become God. 
I'm going to explain that. Don't worry. I'll say it again. The Son of Man became man so that we might become God. Son of Man became man. The Son of God became man so that we might become God. Now listen to St. Thomas Aquinas. He says, The only begotten Son of God, wanting to make us sharers in His divinity, assumed our nature so that He made man, might make men gods. I can give you this quote later. Let's just print it out. Yeah, that's right. Okay, now let's pause here. What are they talking about? Becoming God. <laughs> Many people in life think that they are God. Hopefully you don't live with any of them. <laughs> but there is only... <laughs> there is only... One God. So we are not talking about becoming God substantially. This is not some sort of New Age theory where I'm God, you're God, we're all gods together. But what they are referring to is this, this process of divinization, this transformation of our human nature to live the life of God, to become God-like. This is the absolute fullness of Christian life that we are called to become so transformed by God, by God's grace, that we literally become, like Francis, another Christ, right? Not substantially, of course, but that, like with the saints, when, when someone sees us, they see him, right? Like when people would see Francis, they would see almost the risen Christ. Yes, Francis still existed as a man with his personality, with his temperament, with his gifts. But Christ, he was so close, so united with God, that the very life of Christ just boom, radiated through him. This is, what this means is that this is the goal of our life. This is the fullness of Christian life. It is not just to do good, to say some prayers, to go to Mass on Sunday and get to heaven. <laughs> that is very basic, very basic Christianity. God has so much greater aspirations for us. It is to become divinized, to become like God. Any questions on that? Is that confusing or is this clear? So obviously we're not talking that we become God substantially, right? but that we are called to be so transformed that when people see us, they see Christ. Right? I mean, isn't this the experience of St. Paul in Galatians when he says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He says, yes, I still live my human life, but I live it with faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Thomas Merton has a, a great quote where he says that Catholicism is the taste and experience of eternal life. Too often the Catholic has imagined himself obliged to stop short at a mere correct and external belief expressed in good moral behavior 
instead of entering fully into the life of love and hope, consummated by union with the invisible God in Christ and in the Spirit, thus fully sharing in the divine nature. Right? And so he's just emphasizing this fact that too often we just stop at thinking, okay, I just have to do good, say my prayers, and that's enough. That is, in a sense, kindergarten Christianity. And I'm not in, in any way downplaying the moral life. It's extremely important. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Right? So our moral life is a response to the love of God. But it's so much more that God does, doesn't want us to stop at just being good people. But we are called to become alter Christus, another Christ. And so redemption then is more than just the forgiveness of sins. It is more than just restoring us to right relationship with God. Yes, Jesus forgives us and he restores our relationship with God. But then what does he do? He picks us up. right? He gives us, in a sense, new legs to walk with. He gives us new eyes to see. And more importantly, he gives us his heart to love, right? How can we forgive our enemies? I can't do that with just my human heart. I need a strength and a power much greater than my human heart. I need his heart beating in me, giving me the grace to do what oftentimes seems impossible. This is what St. Paul talks about when he speaks about this new creature, this new creation in Christ. And isn't this the message of the prodigal son, right? When the prodigal son comes back, the father not only welcomes him back, yes, forgives him for being a fool, but what's the next thing he does? He throws a party in his honor, right? And what happens? The son is transformed by the love of the father, right? Not only is he just restored to relationship in his family with his father and the other son, but then the father takes it a whole nother step and throws this party for him, something which he doesn't have to do at all. It would be enough to say, okay, son, welcome back. Here's your shovel, get back to work. But he doesn't. He throws a party. Why? Because of this basic fact that love transforms the beloved into the lover. Right? Mm -hmm. Love transforms the beloved into the lover. In other words, we become what we love, whether that is good or bad. We become what we love. And God, in the Incarnation, revealed what He loves. Us, by becoming human, right? God in the Incarnation revealed His love to humanity by becoming what He loves, one of us, a human being. God comes down to earth to reveal Himself to us, restore us, to show us His love, and then through that Incarnation, He sweeps us up into His divine life so that we become divinized, And we see this to some extent in human relationships. 
my uh, I have a friend at home whose grandparents are they're both in their 90s and they've been married for like 70 years right and when I go to see them it's almost like I'm talking to the same person they look almost identical they finish each other's sentences right they don't have to say honey pass me the salt it's there it is it's almost like they're the same person but yet they're also distinct right but they have just become almost in a sense like the other right what is what, what do we say in genesis about marriage the two become one flesh right well in some sense in the marriage that is baptism we become one with god right and if we continue to respond to that grace and allow ourselves to become divinized we can say like paul it is no longer i who live but christ who lives in me And so, you know, here's the question. Do you believe that God wants to share his life with you? Right? Mm -hmm. That God not only just doesn't want you to follow his laws and his rules, which are important, that he wants to share his very life with you. That he wants you and I to become partakers of the divine nature. This almost sounds ridiculous, I know. It just seems like too much. And it's in my opinion that the greatest fruit of what we've been about here, this, the greatest fruit of this silent prayer, is healing, right? Which I think we're beginning to experience a little bit. <laughs> There's still two more full days, so put your seatbelt on. Why do I say that the greatest fruit of silent prayer is healing? Because I experience, if I can allow myself to go beyond my thoughts, to not overly identify with them, if, what's, beyond, what's behind them? The unconditional love of God. If I can accept that, this transformation is turned up a notch. In silent prayer, as I've said, we experience beneath the noise of our distractions, beneath the noise of our fears, beneath the noise of our anxieties, beneath, as one of you said, the disco party that's going on in my head. <laughs> I love that, Mary. I'm going to steal that. And yet, now that it's recorded, the whole world's going to hear that. But, yeah, but beyond that, what do I discover? Or what do I encounter? A loving presence that accepts me right now where I am. And to experience this unconditional love at the bottom of my heart is what transforms me. When I can accept God's presence in me, I can accept God's presence maybe at least a little bit easier in others. <laughs> maybe not automatically, but certainly easier. When I can encounter God's presence in the chaos of my own heart, I can encounter God's presence in the chaos of our world. Right? This is why if silence is not balanced in our life, we'll be overwhelmed by just watching the news for a half hour. This is why we need to step away 
and spend time in prayer, to spend time in silence. Other words, the chaos of the world will just overwhelm us. But if I can encounter God's presence in the chaos of my own heart at times, in silence and in prayer, then yes, there's hope for the future, for our world, for my family, for my vocation, for my own sanctification. There's hope. And what happens? I, through my very humanity, become the healing presence of Christ to others. And I might not even have to open my mouth. Just the very presence of a person close to Christ is deeply, deeply healing. The more I become divinized, the more Christ is made present in the world. And doesn't our world need Christ? Every age needs him, of course. But the only one we can talk about is the one we're living in. Our age needs Christ. And hence, this is the urgency to live our Christian lives to the full. No pressure. <laughs> no pressure. The, pro the process is already at work in you. That is so clear. But if I don't become, in a sense, who I'm called to be, I suffer. And so does the rest of the world. Right? If we don't become divinized, if we don't become God-like, not only do I suffer, but the rest of the world suffers. My family suffers. People I work with suffer. And so if you really want to help the world, allow God's grace to transform you. Become divinized, and you will set the world on fire. This is the secret of the saints. This was the secret of Francis. He said yes to everything God was inviting him to. He wasn't trying to be another saint. He was just trying to be the person God was calling him to. And by saying yes fully to that grace, he became, like Pope Pius XI said, almost as if he were another risen Christ. And so, my brothers and sisters, this is our destiny. This is the fullness of Christian life. Let us say yes to the Lord and allow him to divinize us. Amen. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm.